As we've said before, we don't believe that D'Angelo began offending when he arrived in Tulare County in 1973. In fact, we're open to looking at potential cases going back to the early 1960s, when D'Angelo was in high school in Folsom. After high school, he was in the Navy between 1964 and 68, so there could be cases during the times he was on leave from the Navy and in the months when his ships, the Canberra and Piedmont, were docked in California. From September 1968 to May 1970, D'Angelo was earning his AA degree from Sierra College in Loomis, Placer County. The two years after that, he worked on his BA from California State University in Sacramento. There was also an internship with Roseville PD before he moved to Exeter in May of 1973. We assume he continued to travel back to the Citrus Heights area frequently to see Sharon prior to their marriage in November and to visit her family before they moved back to that area in August of 1976. D'Angelo was living and working in Auburn while he committed rapes and murders in Sacramento City and County, Modesto, Stockton, Davis, San Jose, Concord, San Ramon, Danville, Fremont, and Walnut Creek. And that only includes the cases in which he's been charged. After he was fired from Auburn PD, he continued to live there until he bought the house in Citrus Heights in 1980. So he was attacking up to eight hours' drive away from home. This is exactly what we expected to find when the EAR was identified. We're not surprised, but we're overwhelmed by the distances and the number of unsolved cases to be examined and eliminated. Three names that came up a lot during the years of speculation about the EAR were Judith Akari, Donna Lass, and Nancy Benelak. We thought we would cover these cases a bit since they bring together Sacramento, the mountains of Placer County, and the South Lake Tahoe area. On Saturday, March 7, 1970, Judith Ann Hikari, a 23-year-old registered nurse, left Sutter Memorial Hospital in Sacramento at the end of her shift. It was about 11.30 p.m. One of her co-workers saw her get in her car and drive away, heading in the direction of her apartment. That night was exceptionally stormy, and it was pouring rain. Waiting for her in her apartment on Markston Road was her fiancé, 24-year-old Raymond Willis. Judith was expected home around 11.45, and Raymond decided to go into the bathroom and brush his teeth. Between the sound of the running water and the storm outside, he didn't hear Judith's 1968 Cougar pull into her parking spot. Given the nature of her job at the hospital, it wasn't unusual for Judith to be late due to an emergency patient. A wall blocked Raymond's view of the parking lot from the apartment, and it wasn't until 1.45 a.m. that he became concerned enough to go out into the storm and look for Judith. What he found is every person's worst nightmare. Judith's car was in its assigned parking spot with the driver's door ajar and the interior light on. There was no sign of her. He walked around outside calling her name before returning to the car for a closer look. Inside, he found Judith's keys on the floor between the bucket seats. On the floor in the back seat, he found several buttons that had been ripped off her raincoat and, sitting on the back seat, were torn strips from a cannon towel Loose threads and ravelings on the seat made it clear that the tearing of the towel occurred in the back of the cougar. Raymond had no doubt he was looking at an abduction scene. And at 2 a.m., he went back inside and called the Sacramento Sheriff's Office. The next morning, Raymond, his father William, and Judith's brother Michael 
joined deputies in a search of the nearby fields and neighborhood, but they found no sign of Judith. The car provided no obvious unidentified fingerprints, and the torn towel was an inexpensive one, commonly found in school locker rooms. Investigators quickly turned to the press to publicize the case. They provided the following information. Judith is 5 feet 2 inches tall and is a slender 118 pounds. She has dark brown hair, brown eyes, and a fair complexion. She has a 2-inch scar on the right side of her forehead and a 4-inch scar on the calf of her left leg. She was last seen wearing her white nurse's uniform, white duty shoes, size 6.5B, and a blue knee-length coat with white polka dots. She also was wearing a name tag, J. Hakari, a green and gold SSC nursing pin, silver-colored duty watch, and her engagement ring, shaped like an antique gold rose with a diamond in the center. Additionally, Judith's black pebble grain leather purse was missing. The kidnapping of such a low-risk, sympathetic victim was highly unusual for Sacramento, and the case drew a lot of attention and resources from Sacramento Sheriff's investigators for three whole weeks. On March 30, 1970, the Bee had an update. Sheriff's deputies today said there is a strong possibility that she just walked away, but we're not ruling out the chance of a crime. Detectives are no longer assigned to the case full-time, as they were after her disappearance was made known. However, officers said new information is checked out promptly as it becomes available. So, after a couple weeks, investigators threw up their hands and turned to blaming the victim. We're not going to pretend that this was reasonable. It was totally and completely idiotic, painfully dumb. It's almost impossible to go on talking about the case after reading that. Why bother? There's no mystery here. You can't catch an offender if you've given up the chase. Judith's family was crushed and gave several interviews trying to make sense of the situation. Had they missed something? Was Judith going through a rough time and they failed to see it? Why would she leave them worrying about her like that? Her family offered a cash reward and paid for ads to publicize their pleas for information. Once again, we're looking at a cold case where valuable time and possible tips were lost because law enforcement gave the impression that they didn't really need help. The disconnect between the terrifying abduction scene and the public message that Judith had probably just walked away leaves us in disbelief. Did we mention the torn strips of towel on the back seat of her car? This wasn't a crime of opportunity. Judith was stalked by someone who planned the abduction and bound her at the scene. Judith hadn't been assaulted and released. She was gone. Women needed to know that a monster was on the loose and could strike again. Instead, they all thought Judith got a bad case of wedding jitters. All of that changed on April 25, 1970, when Judith's body was finally found. Two young people from Sacramento, Leonard and Susan, had spent that Saturday panning for gold and looking at fishing spots along the American River in the mountains of Placer County. As they drove towards home on Ponderosa Way, Leonard suggested that they stop to see an old abandoned cabin and gold mine, a trip he had made before. At about 5 p.m., they pulled onto a dirt road and stopped by the cabin. As they started to walk from the cabin to the mine, they saw a knee sticking out of the ground. Rather than stay to investigate, they drove down to the police station in Weimar. It was dark by the time they returned to the cabin, and Leonard and Susan watched as the police used a flashlight and crowbar to dig around the knee until a leg and foot emerged.
The area where Judith was buried was popular with locals looking to do some target practice, and it was littered with shotgun shells, bullet casings, and empty beer cans. There were no houses nearby. It was totally dark and isolated. The grave was described as roughly scooped out. It was only 24 inches deep, 4 feet long, and 2 feet wide. Leonard described it as very crude, as if someone had just thrown dirt on her and tamped it down. He said that he was surprised that she hadn't been found sooner. The location, about three miles east of Interstate 80, was at an elevation of 3,900 feet, and the coroner found Judith's body to be well-preserved, with very little decomposition, despite being buried for about six weeks. Judith was found on her left side, with her legs tucked behind her. The lower part of her body was stuffed in a white canvas laundry bag that was manufactured by Allied Griffin Tent and Awning. The bags were made exclusively for the San Juan Unified School District in the Citrus Heights area. Also in the bag was one white nurse's saddle shoe. Judith's other shoe was missing, as was her purse and her nurse's duty wristwatch. None of the missing items were ever located. Underneath her body was her underwear and an unidentified gray zip sweatshirt with two pouch pockets in the front. The sweatshirt did not have a hood, and its owner was never identified. Judith was still wearing her engagement ring, white nurse's uniform, with her name stenciled inside the collar and the name tag affixed to the front. The uniform was unsnapped, and her bra had been ripped. Judith was wearing one stocking, and the other was around her neck. A strip of torn towel was tied loosely around her neck, likely a blindfold or gag that had slipped down. It matched the strips of towel found in her car, as well as others found in the grave that may have been used as bindings. Judith had been the victim of a Blitzkrieg-style attack. Her jaw was broken in two places, several teeth were knocked out, and her nose was broken. The hyoid bone in her neck was fractured, leading to a cause of death finding of strangulation and beating. Initial reports indicated that the only finding of a possible sexual assault came after the toxicology work. That suggests something as inconclusive as a positive acid phosphatase test, something we've discussed before as highly unreliable in this type of outdoor case. Later statements in the press said that coroner's deputies concluded that Judith was not sexually assaulted. Given the fact that this homicide has gone so long without the identification of an offender DNA profile, we believe that the final statement of no sexual assault is likely correct. Initial statements from the Sacramento Sheriff's Office sounded defensive. Several detectives worked full-time on the case for about a week after the nurse disappeared. They checked nearly a hundred leads in tracing Miss Akari's whereabouts from the time she left the hospital at 53rd and F Streets until the time she drove into the parking lot of her apartment complex on Markston Road. There was little evidence to show if she was kidnapped or left the area voluntarily until her body was found. Our men and officers from Placer County will conduct a joint investigation. Ultimately, the investigation was led by Lieutenant Abels, head of the Placer County's Homicide Squad. There was no public apology for the pain the Sacramento Sheriff caused Judith's loved ones by telling the world that she had just walked away. However, the Bee followed up with an interesting interview with her fiancé. Monday, April 27, 1970. Fiancé had premonition Hakari girl was dead. 
Raymond Willis, 24, who was to have married Judith Akari in June, said today he knew, deep down inside, she was dead. I had a terrible feeling that night when several hours passed and she failed to show up at her apartment. Something had happened to her, he said, of March 7th. We were so close, we knew what each other was thinking, and I just knew, I could feel it, whatever you might call that sensing, that something had happened to her when she never turned up. He also recalled how a series of events had built up and in a way pointed toward the tragedy. He said that shortly after passing the state nursing examination last year, she decided she wanted to move from her parents' home and live in an apartment of her own for a while. Young Willis said he suggested she get an apartment on an upper floor. She wanted one on the ground floor so she could have a piano, which she dearly loved, one her parents had. The morning of the day she disappeared, the two had worked on refinishing the piano. She obtained an apartment of her own on the ground floor at 1720 Markston Road, but a brick wall obstructed the view from her apartment to the parking lot behind the building. Otherwise, I could have seen her car when she arrived, he pointed out. He was waiting in the apartment for her. He said another circumstance was that Miss Hakari once said she would not fight if she were accosted. She told him a psychology professor advised that a woman is better off if she does not resist an attacker. Because of this philosophy, however, Willis stated he did not understand why someone would kill her. He wondered if she knew the person or one of the persons who kidnapped her and was killed because of this. She had bought a newer car recently, which could not be heard from the apartment. The automobile she previously had made a loud noise. She looked especially pretty, having had her hair done up for a photograph the previous day. The photograph was to have been taken to the bee to run with her engagement announcement story. Her appearance may have struck an appeal to someone who saw her as she drove home from Sutter Memorial Hospital. I'm sure someone saw her, followed her, and grabbed her as she got out of her car, Willis declared. In June, Judith's parents sold her cougar and put the money into a scholarship fund to train nurses in Judith's name. In October 1970, they filed a civil wrongful death lawsuit against six unnamed defendants planning to insert the names of the defendants when they were arrested in the criminal case. Those arrests never came, and the suit died. Just as Judith's case faded from the public eye, another young nurse vanished. On September 22nd, Sacramento Bee ran a small story at the bottom of page B2. Police seek leads on Tahoe Nurse last seen September 6th. Police are seeking information about the mysterious disappearance of Donna A. Lass, a nurse at a state-lying casino who was last seen as she left work September 6. A male caller advised her landlord and her employer the next day she would not be returning to her apartment or to work because of illness in her family. Her sister, contacted by police, stated there had been no illness in the family. Police found her car in front of the apartment and her clothing and other belongings essentially undisturbed. The missing woman is described as 5 feet 4 inches tall, weighing about 135 pounds with blue eyes and blonde hair. This was followed a couple of days later with a longer story and photos of Donna and her sisters who had arrived from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then another story on the 26th in the San Francisco Examiner. Hunt for nurse at dead end. Worried lawmen today said they reached a dead end in the three-week search for a missing gambling casino nurse and conceded they think she has met with foul play. Donna Lass disappeared in the early morning of September 6 after she got off work at the Sahara Hotel Casino in State Line, Nevada. 
We're suspicious of foul play because of the nature of the disappearance and the type of girl she is, said Richard Dunn of the South Lake Tahoe Police. He described the 25-year-old Miss Lass, who went to the resort center from San Francisco in June to work in Sahara's first aid office, as very clean-cut, straight. She had worked the previous five months at Letterman General Hospital. Her roommate in San Francisco, Joanne, went to South Lake Tahoe to spend Labor Day holiday with her. Joanne never saw her friend because she was missing from work. Hotel officials, short time later, contacted police. The circumstances of her disappearance, police said, have raised fears that it is connected with the March 7 disappearance of a Sacramento nurse. Miss Lass's new apartment in South Lake Tahoe was untouched and her car was parked outside. Sergeant Dunn said investigators from Lake Tahoe were working closely with the Sacramento Sheriff's Office because of the possible connection between Miss Akari's murder and Miss Lass's disappearance. A native of Beresford, South Dakota, Miss Lass intended to save money while working at Tahoe for a trip to Europe the next year. Relatives from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, arrived at Tahoe last week, but have been unable to shed any light on her disappearance. Sergeant Dunn said there was no evidence that Miss Lass was a party girl and she had no steady boyfriend. She did have lots of friends and she would never do this, run off, without notifying someone, he said. Although it had taken three weeks to get the word out about Donna's disappearance, it appeared that investigators had been working hard and were moving forward in the right direction. However, on the 28th, the case took an all-too-predictable turn. Sacramento B, Monday, September 28, 1970. Tahoe Police push search for nurse. Police continued today their painstaking search for missing state-line casino nurse Donna A. Lass in one of the most intensive investigations in memory. Lieutenant John Crow, head of the detective division, said a published opinion of an officer that a missing woman may have met with foul play is his exclusive opinion and not the belief of the department. Quote, This is one of the many possibilities, but we have no reason to suppose it is a fact, Crow stated. The woman had traveled widely throughout the United States during her career, at one time as a nurse to a retired doctor who traveled continuously. She had friends throughout the western states with whom we are checking, the detective said. Miss Last, 25, had not been seen since leaving her job in the security department of a state-line casino at 2 a.m. September 6th. Here we are again. A reliable, professional woman had left her job, money, car, and belongings, and law enforcement concluded that she just walked away. Donna went missing about four months after Judith was found murdered in the neighboring county. Two nurses were last seen leaving work after a late shift, and the head of the detective division could not see a possible connection. Donna's family were totally unsatisfied with the police investigation, and not only hired their own private investigator, but offered a substantial reward through the media and paid ads. Soon, Donna's case was pushed out of the news by the murder of yet another young woman. On Monday, October 26, 1970, Nancy Marie Benelak was late for work. The 28-year-old had been a court reporter for four years, and she was well-loved by her co-workers in the Sacramento County Juvenile Court. 
By 9.30 that morning, they were worried, and one of them called her son who lived in Nancy's apartment building. He got no answer at Nancy's door and got the building manager to unlock it. Together they found Nancy, dead on the floor next to her bed. Nancy was engaged to marry the chief public defender for Sacramento County, and he was the last person to see her on Sunday night. They had dinner at his brother's home, and then he left Nancy in her apartment at 11.30 p.m. One of Nancy's neighbors heard something that sounded like a scream and footsteps around 1.30 a.m., but she didn't check it out or call the police. The sequence of events in the night was fairly clear. Someone had climbed up onto a gas meter, scaled a fence, and then pulled himself up onto Nancy's second-floor balcony. She had left the sliding door open for her cat, so the killer was able to enter the apartment silently. Nancy was attacked as she slept in bed. It appeared that she had been threatened with a knife, which she grabbed as she tried to defend herself. They ended up on the floor during the struggle, and Nancy died from blood loss due to wounds to her neck. A blood trail showed that the killer left the same way he entered, and there was hope that he had been cut during the struggle. The murder weapon was not found at the scene, so it was possible the blood drops came from the knife. The motive was a mystery. The apartment had not been ransacked, and Nancy's engagement ring and other valuables remained untouched. Nancy had not been sexually assaulted, but there seemed to be no question that she had been stalked and targeted. Judith and Nancy's apartments were 200 yards apart and only separated by a field. They were both independent, professional women in their 20s who were engaged to be married and similar in appearance. Although they did not know each other, investigators determined that they had shopped and conducted business at many of the same locations in their neighborhood. We have no idea what the killer's plan was for Nancy. He may have brought bindings and planned to control her, but she quickly grabbed the knife and fought to the end. It's interesting that it appears that they were never able to develop a male DNA profile in either Nancy or Judith's case. Presumably, the blood trail matched Nancy and there were no fingerprints. We can't think of another source of physical evidence there. Judith's car was not preserved as evidence, but her body and grave had some possible DNA choices. Without a sexual assault or some type of blood evidence, they would be limited to skin cell DNA. The obvious choices would be the towel strips, stocking around her neck, gray sweatshirt, and the canvas laundry bag. If the killer wore gloves, that could leave the sweatshirt as the only likely option. Let's be honest, leaving that sweatshirt in the grave screams planted evidence. That's even more true when we look at the Cannon Institutional Towel, the San Juan School District laundry bag, and the sweatshirt together. It feels like all of these items were taken from a gym locker room, sporting event, or maybe stolen from a car. The killer either grabbed a laundry bag with items inside, used them in the murder, and left them because he knew they couldn't be traced to him, or he chose them on purpose to point police to a particular suspect. The location of Judith's grave also raises a lot of questions. We feel confident that the killer knew of the site and had visited it before. As Leonard, the man who found the grave, noted, there were more remote spots where she never would have been found all around there. Why choose a spot popular with locals and sightseers? The only thing we can think of there is the abandoned mine. Did he plan to put Judith in the laundry bag and drop her in the old mine shaft? There is no evidence that he even had a shovel to dig a grave. What was the plan? 
there seems to be a huge gap between the careful planning of the abduction and the makeshift almost public grave. We're also curious about the public statement that there had been very little decomposition, and the finding that Judith had been at the site since her disappearance 48 days. The altitude at the site is 3,900 feet, the same as the location where Cindy Warner was found, 1991. Cindy was missing for only 19 days during a much colder time of the year. If Placer County cold case investigators are still looking for someone who held Cindy hostage for two weeks or kept her in a cooler, it seems like it's time for a new expert examination of the evidence. There was some discussion about whether or not a weapon had been used to inflict Judith's facial injuries, but we've seen those same injuries in two Tulare cases only weeks apart in the fall of 1974. Those victims were attacked in their homes, lost consciousness after being punched multiple times, and the beatings were so severe that they both suffered permanent damage. Either of them easily could have died. We're also reminded of the September 4th and October 18th, 1976 EAR attacks. Those victims were both approached at their cars in the driveway. The September victim was unexpectedly punched in the face so hard she was only semi-conscious. The October victim was forcibly dragged out of her car with a knife to her throat. There are numerous other examples of the EAR punching his victims, but the injuries were not as severe. The torn strips of towel used to make bindings, blindfolds, and gags was a signature of the EAR, and seems like strong circumstantial evidence. The VR-EAR favored taking small personal items like watches, but left expensive diamond rings, and he was obsessed with women's purses. Those missing items are definitely consistent with his M.O. Judith's case also shared elements of a creepy stalker case in Visalia in 1974 that has been linked to D'Angelo. The victim was a nurse at a local hospital who remembers seeing D'Angelo there, in uniform, with no discernible business. This happened on multiple occasions over a period of months. During this same time, the nurse was being stalked at home. The hidden house key went missing, and they thought one of the kids had misplaced it, but later, someone came into the house drank beer, and left the empty cans on the back patio. There was also a series of incidents involving her car. It was taken and returned, the glove box was broken into and rifled, and pages from a pornographic magazine were displayed on the seats. She also received numerous phone calls threatening sexual violence, always during the day after she worked the night shift. Her family changed their phone number and moved within Visalia, but the calls continued. Eventually, they moved out of state to escape the stalker and the stress it was causing within the family. Obviously, Nancy Benelak's murder shares a lot with the EAR-ONS and Snelling MO. It's hard to know what lessons would have been learned there. Perhaps not attacking in apartments or on the second floor, or bringing a gun to appear more lethal and allow distance. It's so difficult to guess why none of the EAR attacks ended in a fight to the death, yet Nancy's did. Maybe Nancy's experience in the courts led her to believe that she would be killed even if she complied, or she was on high alert after Judith had been kidnapped nearby. The EAR relied on convincing his victims that they would be fine if they cooperated. If that illusion had been broken, he may have encountered more resistance. It's like the planes on 9-11. The last flight left late, and the passengers became aware of the Twin Towers and Pentagon. Once they believed that they were going to die, they knew they had nothing to lose by fighting back. Maybe Nancy believed she was going to end up in a grave in the woods, while the later EAR victims initially believed he was just there to rob them. 
Since South Lake Tahoe police had put out the word that they believed that Donna Lass had probably walked away from her life rather than met with foul play, Sacramento investigators worked Judith and Nancy's cases as likely related, but were not looking for consistencies with Donna or the circumstances of her disappearance. However, that all changed after Paul Avery at the San Francisco Chronicle received a postcard from the Zodiac Killer on March 22, 1971. The postcard, which you can see on our website, blog, Facebook page, and the Unsolved map, is handmade from a newspaper ad for a new condominium development called Forest Pines. The condos were being built in Incline Village, Nevada, on the north end of Lake Tahoe. We're not here to do a deep dive into the postcard or the Zodiac murders and writings, but generally, the postcard gave the impression that his 12th victim might be buried in the area depicted on the card. By March 26th, the postcard and its potential connection to Donna Lass's disappearance in South Lake Tahoe the previous September was big news. Suddenly, a case that had been abdicated to Donna's family and their private investigator was a possible Zodiac killing. Since the Zodiac only had five confirmed victims, there was immediate speculation about who victims 6 through 11 might be. Once the Zodiac case found Lass, it didn't take long for speculation about the Hikari and Benelak murders to start. This seems to raise five questions. Were Hikari, Benelak, and Lass all killed by the same person? Were they murdered by the Zodiac killer? Were they killed by the EAR? Was the EAR influenced by the Zodiac? And did the EAR want law enforcement to believe he was the Zodiac, or did he pose as the Zodiac in letters to the press? We don't feel we have enough information to even guess whether or not the three murders were committed by the same offender. Many aspects of the Hikari and Benelak murders feel like the EAR, and later unsolved Placer County cases, but Lass is a mystery. There was no sign of a forced abduction, and Donna's body was well hidden since it's never been found. Those could be signs of a killer improving upon mistakes in the Hikari case, or a totally different MO. The detail that bothers us most is the phone calls made to Donna's landlord and employer, telling them she'd gone home to her family and wasn't going to return. She'd only rented the apartment and moved in the day before she disappeared, She hadn't even slept there yet. Also, it seems that her killer knew that her family lived out of the area. If the killer abducted her at work, how did he know where she lived? If she was taken at home, she had to be followed, or someone she knew was waiting for her. Overall, we have a very unsettled feeling that Donna was killed by someone she knew, and probably knew well. We have no proof of that, but generally strangers with no connection to the victim are not as concerned about hiding the facts of their crimes. The possible inside knowledge and efforts to hide her abduction and murder feel more personal. We assume that there are books and internet groups that contain voluminous discussions of whether or not these three cases were the work of the Zodiac. The confirmed Zodiac homicides were couples and a cab driver, all attacked in public places. Three involved shootings in vehicles. There were no known cases in Sacramento, Placer County, or Tahoe. No single women, no abductions, and no home burglaries. By confirmed cases, we're using the homicides for which the Zodiac specifically took credit and offered irrefutable proof. That leaves off the Bates case in Riverside in 1966 and the Johns case outside Modesto in 1970. 
The Zodiac only seemed to respond to those after the press wrote about a possible connection, and he never offered details only the offender would know. To our knowledge, none of the Zodiac's writings ever mentioned cases which could be matched to Hikari or Benelak, and the Tahoe postcard did not reference Lass, a nurse, South Lake Tahoe, a casino, or the time frame of her disappearance. There's no circumstantial or direct evidence pointing to the Zodiac, just speculation. The cases do have many MO similarities with EAR and Tulare cases tied to D'Angelo. We also know that D'Angelo lived in Placer County and went to school in Sacramento during 1970. He also liked to recreate in the Tahoe area. Although 1970 seems early compared to the arbitrary EAR start date of June 1976, there is ample evidence that D'Angelo was active in burglaries in Rancho Cordova in 1973, and we've already documented his other suspected and charged crimes from 1974 to 1976. D'Angelo would have had four years in the Navy and almost two in college prior to the Hakari homicide. He was not a kid. Clearly, there is more circumstantial evidence linking the cases to the EAR than to the Zodiac. In recent blog posts that we've shared on Facebook and our website, we've discussed how the EAR rapes shared so many common MO points with the Porterville rapist that Sacramento initially put a hold on that offender, Ben Galloway, after his arrest in July of 1976. Galloway intentionally developed a character for his offender, and it was that very specific and consistent M.O. that garnered him a scary name in the press and kept the community on edge. D'Angelo was obviously aware of the details of Galloway's crimes and notoriety, and we'd be interested to know if that influenced the persona that became the East Area Rapist. We realized looking at the Zodiac's Tahoe postcard that we had always assumed that the EAR was heavily influenced by the Zodiac, but that we'd never looked at those connections directly in relation to D'Angelo. The most obvious influence may have been the North Bay area, where the first three Zodiac murders occurred. From August 1, 1956, to June 21, 1959, D'Angelo's father was stationed at Hamilton Air Force Base, directly across San Pablo Bay from Vallejo. We assume that law enforcement knows where the D'Angelos lived during those years, but it seems fair to say that Joe would have been familiar with the area and interested in the Zodiac's choice of attack locations. We also know that Joe was discharged from the Navy at Treasure Island in San Francisco in 1968. His interest in the area is also confirmed by the Contra Costa EAR attacks, four of which were in Concord and Walnut Creek, just across from Vallejo. If you were thinking about committing attacks and murder in Northern California in the early 70s, the Zodiac would have commanded a lot of your attention. One of the things that seems confusing to us is the debate about the source of the Zodiac Killer's name and symbol. It is painfully obvious that he took the name, font, and symbol of the Zodiac Watch Company of Switzerland. Their most popular and well-advertised watch in the 1960s was the Seawolf, a diving watch. You can see ads and photos of this model on our website and Facebook page. People are 100% free to think what they want and disagree, but it's case closed on this issue for us. Why would any of this have been of interest to D'Angelo? Simple. He was a diver, a proud member of the National Association of Underwater Instructors. How could he not have noticed the connection between the most popular diving watch and the serial killer that was taunting police? We also noticed two things related to firearms that were mimicked by D'Angelo. 
One is that neither Zodiac nor D'Angelo were ever known to use the same firearm twice. Two, they were both hyper-aware of the changes in the handgun laws that had taken effect in the U.S. in 1968. All new handguns manufactured in the U.S. had to have registered serial numbers that identified them and tracked their ownership. The Zodiac referenced avoiding those guns in one of his letters, and D'Angelo repeatedly stole older and foreign handguns and left newer U.S.-made guns untouched. He also disposed of two stolen guns in irrigation canals, one between Visalia and Exeter in 1975 and the other in Modesto in 1978. Both of these guns had serial numbers. D'Angelo and the Zodiac also both seemed to pride themselves on being good shots, even when firing in the dark after fleeing victims. Another Zodiac habit D'Angelo seems to have picked up was his costume preparations. Not only did the EAR favor homemade hoods and masks to hide his face and hair, but most often he only put in eye holes, not the nose and mouth. Although we generally say the EAR wore a ski mask, it's a misnomer. He often wore hats pulled down with eye holes cut out, nylons, or cotton or canvas hoods. The early EAR attacks also saw him wearing a belt with a knife hanging from one side and a gun from the other, exactly like the Zodiac at Lake Berryessa. It was hardly practical, but it did create a memorable image. Since D'Angelo's arrest, we've thought a lot about all of the conflicting descriptions of his hair, and the only rational explanation is that he used a temporary theatrical hair color, or wore a wig. Both the VR and EAR descriptions settled on blonde to light brown hair, and that was never D'Angelo's natural hair color. The same confusion is true with the Zodiac. The Lake Berryessa victims saw dark brown hair, but the other descriptions ranged in color from dishwater blonde, brown with a red tint, or curly light brown. The Zodiac also wore prop glasses during the Stein homicide and bragged about his disguise in a follow-up letter. Changing his clothes and shoes in every attack may also have been something that D'Angelo copied from the Zodiac. Since the Zodiac was never caught, everything he did looked more successful, and that may have added to the desire to copy him. The Zodiac prided himself on hiding and waiting out the police after the Stein shooting, and always walking or driving away calmly after his crimes. He indicated that running away or burning rubber was for people who wanted to get caught. This is also a perfect description of the VR and EAR. After shooting Claude Snelling, Beth said the VR calmly walked off into the night, and we know he waited and hid in the bushes until the police activity passed him after the McGowan shooting. The EAR kept a calm, cool pace after his September 1976 victims escaped to the neighbor's house, despite the fact that he was naked from the waist down. Similarly, after the Majori shooting, he did a combination of calm walking and hiding in bushes until the coast was clear. Maintaining that unflappable facade as the police came rushing in was no accident, and it was highly effective. We haven't even done a shallow dive into the exact timing of when the details of the Lake Berryessa attack would have been known to the general public, but it had to be prior to 1976. D'Angelo appears to have stolen almost every single detail of the Zodiac's actions that day. We've already mentioned the homemade hood and weapons belt, but those are just the tip of the iceberg here. The most amazing match is the patter with his victims. Now, take it easy. All I want is your money. There is nothing to worry about. All I want is your money. Just don't make any fast moves. Come up slowly. Every little bit helps. I'm on my way to Mexico. I escaped from Deer Lodge Prison in Montana. 
Deer Lodge. I need some money to get there. One more thing. I want your car keys. My car's hot. I killed a couple of guards getting out of prison, and I'm not afraid to kill again. Now, I want the girl to tie you up. Now, I want you both to lay face down so I can tie up your feet. Get down right now. Sure, I'll show you. Removes the clip from the pistol and shows the ammo inside to the victims. Okay, lay down. I've got her tied down. We're not going to go back over all of the reasons that the EAR said he needed cash, what he was running from, or where he was going. But you would be hard-pressed to know whether these Lake Berryessa lines were from the EAR or the Zodiac if nobody told you. Although D'Angelo stopped asking for car keys fairly early in the EAR series, he did it in three attacks and took the keys with him, just like the Zodiac did after the Stein homicide. The man who attempted to kill Nancy in 1977 also took her car keys. Again, this is all very weirdly specific. After the Zodiac finished with his story and robbery pretense, he pulled pre-cut pieces of hollow plastic clothesline out of his back pants pocket and ordered the female victim to tie the hands of the male victim behind his back. There are several cases where the EAR used actual clothesline, and he often arrived at attack scenes with pre-cut bindings. In fact, one of these is a main piece of evidence in the Missouri homicide. It's thought that he dropped it from a pocket when he pulled out his handgun or mask. Besides the Zodiac costume, probably the most infamous detail of the Lake Berryessa attack is the writing on the car door of the victim's Carmen Ghia. The Zodiac drew his symbol and a list of his attacks, which included the two by Vallejo and Lake Berryessa. Looking at that car door, it's hard not to think about a similar note found at Mount Whitney High School the morning of the Snelling shooting. Claude Snelling was killed around 2 a.m. on September 11, 1975, and about 10 hours later, before details had hit the newspaper or had a chance to get around town, some of Beth's friends found a note possibly left by the killer. As they got out of their vehicle in the school lot, they noticed that someone had written on the side mirror of the truck next to them and turned the mirror out so it was visible. On the mirror was written, Beth, I'll get the rest. It appeared to be written by a finger in the dust on the mirror. VPD were called, and they removed the entire side mirror and booked it into evidence. Presumably, it's still there. This mirror note message is also similar to the note sent in the 1966 Riverside murder of Sherry Jo Bates, which had been extensively covered by Paul Avery in a series of articles in the San Francisco Chronicle in 1971. Those notes were handwritten on notebook paper and said, Bates had to die, there will be more. Except the one written to Bates's father, which said, she had to die, there will be more. Presumably her father knew who she was without further explanation. Since the Zodiac never specifically offered unique knowledge of that murder, it's hard to know if he killed Bates, but Avery's coverage of it as a possible Zodiac case could have been enough to inspire D'Angelo. Another commonality we noticed is a focus around Mount Diablo in Contra Costa County. The Zodiac sent a map of the area as a supposed clue to where he had hidden a bomb meant to take out a school bus. There are only two roads to the summit of the mountain, the North Gate, which starts between the EAR's Concord and Walnut Creek attack locations, and Southgate, which is located near the Danville attacks. 
We don't know if any of this corresponds to code on the Zodiac's map, but it doesn't really matter if D'Angelo was only using the idea for inspiration. We were well aware of the Zodiac's writings, but were surprised to learn how many phone calls he made. He not only called the police to report his own crimes, but he also seemed to have called the parents and husband of one of the victims the night she was killed. Those were both long silence hang-up calls. There is probably a lot of interesting analysis to be done on exactly how the Zodiac chose which payphones to use and why he didn't always call the correct jurisdiction. Obviously, both the silent hang-ups and calling the police are EARMO points. And we also have similar calls in Visalia and Exeter when D'Angelo lived there. In Visalia, he made a point of calling a back line that he would have known was not recorded. After BPD added recording to that line, the calls stopped. Zodiac lived to see his names, crimes, threats, and taunts in print. There has never been any question in our minds that the VREAR was also totally and completely obsessed with his own press coverage and responded to it. We watched TCSO cold case detectives' eyes glaze over when we tried to explain the series of Vesalia ransackings and Tulare cat burglaries that followed Sheriff Wiley's statement to the press that there was no reason to believe that Jennifer Armour had been murdered. They told us they just didn't see it. We continued to believe that D'Angelo created a flashing neon sign saying, look at me, and it was and still is being totally ignored by investigators. This same pattern of law enforcement statements, followed by obvious responses, occurred throughout Tulare County while D'Angelo lived there and continued with the EAR cases. It has always been an accepted MO point in Sacramento, but TCSO and Tulare DA Ward refused to open their eyes and look. Similarly, it appears that D'Angelo tried to imitate the way the Zodiac played games with the police. While we're unaware of any printed maps or codes sent to law enforcement in Tulare County or any of the EAR ONS jurisdictions, that doesn't mean that D'Angelo didn't try. The reason the Zodiac was taken seriously is because he provided irrefutable proof that he was the killer. Vasily and Sacramento received all kinds of communications that they determined were hoaxes or sent by kooks. It's possible that investigators failed to notice details that had not been disclosed to the press or D'Angelo missed that important requirement necessary to be taken seriously. We've heard rumors of all kinds of communications that were not disclosed to the public and others that were dismissed and discarded. However, as we've already covered at length, D'Angelo did leave roadmaps of clues meant to be followed by law enforcement. Not only were none of these picked up by investigators at the time, when we tried to point them out to EAR task force members, we were told we were seeing what we wanted to see and that the patterns and trails didn't exist. If not for John Vaughn and Larry Poole seeing what we saw, we would have given up years ago. It's less obvious in the relentless confessions of the Zodiac, but the clues were meant to be found and followed, and they're important to understanding the full extent of D'Angelo's crimes. That brings us to the question of motive. If we stick to the four Zodiac cases in which he provided irrefutable proof, it's fairly easy to analyze what he wanted. Although it looked as though he may have tried to take a class ring in the Lake Herman murders, ultimately it was left behind. 
There was no attempt to steal anything from the victims at Blue Rock, and while the Zodiac asked for the keys at Lake Berryessa, they were not taken. He did steal Paul Stein's keys, wallet, and a torn piece of his shirt. There's no evidence that the motive was robbery, although it's possible his original intention was to make it look like one. The Zodiac used the shirt as proof of his identity, and it's possible that the other items were taken for the same reason, or simply as souvenirs. There were no sexual assaults or evidence of torture or unnecessary cruelty in the killings. There was no personal motive, such as revenge, a love triangle, or rejection by the victims. The killings didn't involve a bad business deal, and they weren't co-conspirators in criminal behavior. They weren't spur-of-the-moment rage killings. It appears that he was out looking for victims in each case. This all feels more like fantasy that crossed into real life. How would I hunt humans? How could I commit the perfect murder? Do I have what it takes to be a killer? Can I make sure that everyone knows that I'm smarter than the police who are hunting me? How can I be famous and have everyone talking about me? It's Leopold and Loeb meets the most dangerous game. In the end, it's all about proving that he's more powerful and smarter than both his victims and the people trying to stop him. That's an incredibly stupid reason to murder people, but we don't have a better answer. Did he enjoy killing people? Probably. Did he thrive on taunting and feeling superior to law enforcement? Definitely. There's no doubt that D'Angelo was aware of the legend and notoriety that grew around the Zodiac, and that he desired to create the same kind of legacy for himself. We've spoken to people who worked with D'Angelo in Exeter, and the most consistent description of him is as someone who thought of himself as an intellectual among fools. He talked down to his co-workers and acted as if small-town law enforcement was beneath his skills. He didn't socialize, make friends, or participate in the community, and by all accounts he was a terrible police officer. He wasn't seen as someone who could handle himself on patrol or follow rules and procedures. The Zodiac had publicly mocked, taunted, and humiliated the police, and got the press to hang on his every word. He was, and is, one of the most famous criminals in the world. Most importantly, he was smart enough to get away with serial murder. By all appearances, those are the same goals D'Angelo set for himself. We don't want to delve too deeply into the Zodiac writings in this episode, but we've posted them in a gallery on our Facebook page, and the blog on our website homepage. It's really fascinating reading those cards and letters, knowing what we do about the VR, EAR, ONS, and D'Angelo himself, and we thought others might find them interesting. That being said, we do want to touch on one letter that bothers us. It was written to KHJ9TV in Los Angeles on May 2nd, 1978, and threatened to start killing again, with specific named targets. What caught our eye was the end Hey, you actors, this is your lucky break. Remember, whoever plays me has his work cut out for him. See you in the news. It's signed with the Zodiac symbol. Right off, we thought of Excitement's Crave, the poem that the EAR sent to the Sacramento Bee, Sacramento Mayor, and KVIE 6 TV on December 11, 1977. It ends... Sacramento should make an offer to make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest. See you in the press or on TV. Since the contents of Excitement's Crave were not published until many years after it was received, 
It seems like an odd coincidence that the Zodiac used such similar language in a letter he sent only five months later. The most obvious explanation is that the EAR sent the letter to KHJ and signed it as the Zodiac. Prior to D'Angelo's arrest, we had wondered about the VREAR's goals in mimicking the Zodiac. The handmade hoods, weapons belt, phone calls, letter writing, weird rehearsed verbal pattern with the victims, changing clothing and weapons, jurisdiction hopping, and bringing pre-cut bindings in his pocket seemed too specific to ignore. Was Excitement's Crave sent to the Sacramento Bee so Paul Avery could see it and write about him? Not long after the 1978 Zodiac letter was sent, the EAR started attacking in Davis, near Lake Berryessa, and across from Vallejo in the Mount Diablo area. We've always wondered if, at some point, the EAR tried to make it appear that the Zodiac was active again. There are a lot of debates about the authenticity of some of the Zodiac letters after 1971. But by 78, the Zodiac had been quiet for a number of years. Did the EAR think he could step into the empty shoes and gain Zodiac-level attention for his crimes? We don't understand all of the intentions, but after looking at the Porterville Rapist and Zodiac, it's clear that many of D'Angelo's actions weren't based on compulsion, but rather on creating a memorable character, generating community terror, gaining press coverage, publicly outsmarting the police, and, most importantly, doing all of that without getting caught. One last thing from the Zodiac writings that we've just started thinking about is the back of the Halloween greeting card he sent to Paul Avery in October 1970. In reference to the people he was going to kill to be his slaves in paradise, he wrote, by fire, by gun, by knife, and by rope. We have unsolved cases involving all of those methods, including two fire cases we haven't decided whether or not to write about. If D'Angelo was using the Zodiac as a roadmap for his own offenses, these types of clues could be important pieces of the puzzle. Understanding where D'Angelo's internal violent urges end and where pre-planned behavior began will be necessary to sort out his real motive in each potential case being evaluated by law enforcement.